come and worship Christ the Lord today. So let's do that in um, our time of study and then in our time of worship to follow. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, thankful for Christ that he came and uh, he, though he were ri- he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And uh, Lord, it is his gift that we um, love and that we treasure and we proclaim to the nations, to our friends and family who need to hear of him, need to hear of the great love that he has shown to them, need to hear of the coming judgment if they oppose him. Thankful that you have called us out of darkness into light, and we pray that you would shed uh, your grace upon us as we as we look into your word and consider how to properly interpret it, and we pray that it would give us long-term effects for the sake of your glory as we seek to hear from you and understand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have been working through the process of learning how to study the Bible for ourselves, and the first step in the process um, is hearing. It's the process, the first step in the process of hearing is observation. Observation is simply noticing what the author has written. So our job is simply to look, look, look. We need to just look at the text. And we took three examples last week and tried to do that together. Um, So when we're looking at the scripture from that perspective, we could say that that's more the telescopic view or maybe the 30,000 foot level view. We want to look at it, try to understand it in its context. Um, see it from a high level. We're trying to um, uh, synthesize it with the text around it, the context um, within the passage that we're given. We're, tr- we're trying to see the big picture. What is the theme of the text? What is the author intending to proclaim or to explain to us? Today, we want to, to do work um, more like a, more like a, a detailed um, look at the text. So if you think of it like an ocean, you know, we're kind of flying over the ocean as the observation idea. We want to see kind of the landscape or, or the seascape, so to speak. And, and then now what we're going to do is actually dive into the water, look underneath, see what's going on uh, with it. Or if you want to think of it in scientific terms, we have a telescope and a microscope. So this second part of studying is a microscopic kind of view. Um, it's, it's more the detective work. We want to ask a bunch of questions. It's not just that we're stepping back and seeing all the clues that are there, but now we want to ask specific questions and try to chase those questions and answers and find out uh, w- what they are based on other passages of Scripture or the passage that we have itself. So interpretation is understanding. It's, it's impossible to interpret the Word of God if we don't first observe it. And it's impossible to apply the word if we don't first understand it. So that's why we need these three parts of the process of hearing. Observation, interpretation or dissection, and then application. We need to do it in that order. Um, And I'll give you your blanks here in just a second. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. I would suggest that it's not enough just to hear the word. It's not just enough to 
observe the word. We have to do more than that. And that's what these next two steps are, are all about over the next four weeks. Now, it certainly has to start there with hearing or observing, but, but we cannot end there. Notice uh, Jesus is talking about the, the sower and how he sows the seed. Notice in verse 23, Matthew 13, 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word. And that would be the process of observation. He's, he's trying to see the text for what it is, see it at a, a larger view. But notice this next part, and understands it. So it's not just enough to just look at the text or hear it. We need to understand it. And then he goes on to say, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. In fact, um, all of these soils heard the word, right? I mean, the first one, verse 19, when anyone hears the word, the end of the verse says, this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky place. And Jesus goes on to say, um, that, that these are people who, they don't get it. Either Satan takes the seed away, um, so when they initially hear it, he immediately takes it away and it never takes any root. Or, uh, you know, it starts to grow up, but then immediately immediately, immediately gets choked out. Or um, it just didn't have enough it deep enough root. But then there's this fourth kind of soil where the person actually hears the word and understand it. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to simply hear what God says like, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher that's just making noise. You know, we, we want to actually understand what's being said so that we can respond to it so we can apply we can apply it to our lives. So that's where we're moving. Observation, first, first blank there. Observation is noticing what the text says. Noticing what it says. Interpretation or dissection is understanding what it meant. We want to understand what the text meant. So what did the original author mean when he was writing this? And then finally, application is using what it means. So based on what it meant for them, we have the same meaning, but but we need to apply it in a different way. We're taking what was meant and we're applying it to our lives. So we'll, we'll talk about how that works in the next several weeks. But first we want to get into this second step, which is, to understand what the author meant. Because it's all about hearing and doing what God has said. And we can't do until we first understand. Or we will not understand what we're doing. We're just going through some kind of motions. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 119.34, Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. So interpretation comes down to this um, one basic principle. And that is that interpretation is seeking to understand the author's intended meaning through the context. Remember, context is key when we, we want to understand the text of anything, but, but particularly the text of Scripture, we want to understand the context in which it was written. In Acts chapter 8, we read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch remember he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53 and Philip approached him and and asked this basic interpretation question he said do you understand what you're reading you see Philip knew that understanding the word was the path to salvation it wasn't enough just for the Ethiopian eunuch to have a scroll open and he was reading it he actually had to understand it that's why Philip asked the question 
And the eunuch's specific question to Philip was, how can I? You know, please tell me who this prophet is. Who is this prophet speaking of? Is he speaking of himself or someone else? And the eunuch did not understand who the author was talking about, but he did understand the most basic interpretation principle, and that is that the correct meaning, if he was going to understand what that text meant, he needed to know what the author meant. And so what Philip did is he went back into Isaiah and showed him that Isaiah was talking about whom? About the Messiah, right? Jesus, the Christ. And specifically, the text says there in Acts 8.35, And beginning from this scripture, Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. So interpretation is understanding the intention in the mind of the author through, as Philip said, this scripture, or as Luke records, this scripture, which is, in that case, it was Isaiah 53. It was the passage in its own context. Interpretation is both an art and a science. It's a science because it supplies us with the basic principles that are true for all literature. Uh, In other words, you can use these same interpretation principles that I'm teaching you here, or maybe just reminding you of. You can use these in any kind of literature to understand what the author means. And in fact, if you want to be true to that author... Um, again, I, I use the example of a, a love letter where a detective might take that and, and use it against me. Um, he would be wrong to do that because that wasn't what I meant, right? So the point is that we need to base our understanding of any document, any piece of literature, on what the author intended. And so these principles that you're going to see here are, are helpful for all kinds of literature, but, but specifically we want to think about it in terms of the Bible. Now, there's one thing that's unique when you interpret the Bible, and that is that the Bible has two authors, right? It, in in a, any given book, there's 40 authors altogether, but, but in a, any given book, you have a human author and a divine author, right? You have God. And so um, what we need to understand here is that we're trying to understand who, what the author's meaning is, what his, his intent was. So when we, we say that, when we ask that question, which author are we talking about? And the answer is both, right? Because God is actually supernaturally working through the individual author so that the text of Scripture is the words of the author, Paul, Moses, whomever, but it's also the words of God, right? That, that the prophets, First Peter 1 or Second Peter 1, I can't remember, but at the end of the first chapter it says, that prophets spoke long ago through, or, or the Spirit spoke long ago through the prophets. So this is how God speaks to us. So when we want to understand the author's meaning, we want to understand both the individual human author, and as we understand that, we understand actually God's intention as well. So we don't have to put some kind of um, uh, false dichotomy between, false dissection between, okay, well, this is what he meant, but what did God really want to say? No, the author and God are, are one in this process of interpretation, or, or I should say, of uh, inspiration. Right? That's why um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. Right? So we can accept the, the word as true. And, and as we understand the meaning, we're, we're understanding um, God's meaning. 
So interpretation is a science, but it's also an art. So we can, we can learn lots of principles. I'm going to give you ten principles, ten basic principles for how to interpret the scriptures. But we can learn these in principles. We can use them on the scriptures. We can use them on other ty- types of literature. But we should also recognize that principles um, uh, can be improved upon, or, or our use of principles can be improved upon, right, if, if uh, you're a mechanic and, uh, or you're an aspiring mechanic and you have someone teaching you, they, they may lay out the principles, but you actually can improve in how you uh, use those principles to apply it to whatever you're trying to fix. Um, and so if we want to make good use of these principles of interpretation, it requires, just like anything else, practice. Right? We d- we're not going to come to the Scripture the first time and go, Boom. I, I, I took all these principles, I applied it, got it, no problem. Um, we, we may have that, but, but most likely it's going to come over time. It requires practice. It, it requires an increasing understanding of each human author, how and in what context he's writing, uh, how God thinks, how the authors think. So, so this improves over time. Now, let me... Um, the next blank there under dissection of the text is is important. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to give you those blanks in just a second. But before I do that, I just want to set it up by saying that interpretation is not a supernatural act of God. Okay, Su- interpretation is not a supernatural act of God. It's not a mir- miraculous work that's being done on us when we interpret the Bible. Um, that is, if you're thinking about that, like, wait a second. Doesn't the Holy Spirit enlighten my eyes? Doesn't He remove my hostility towards the Scripture? And I would say yes, but that's not interpretation. That's illumination. Okay, illumine, right? Inside that word, we have the, the idea of turning on the lights. It, it opens our eyes to the truth. That's illumination. What we're talking about is something different. It's, it's similar, but it's different. First uh, Corinthians 2.12 says that the Spirit who is from God uh, helps us to know the things that are freely given to us by God. Because for the natural man, these things are spiritually appraised. So illumination means that godly truth in the Scripture is, uh, is, is, is trustworthy to a believer. Because of the work of the Spirit. It, it's actually seen as true. So it's the Spirit of God who works in us to help us understand, to help us to, to see what we're seeing, uh, the text that is, as truth. But the problem is, right, obviously the Holy Spirit's doing a work within us, but do we have the ability to quench the Spirit? Do we? Right? Ephesians 5 says we do because it commands us not to quench the Spirit. So we have the ability to actually resist what the Spirit is trying to do. So the Spirit's trying to, because we're believers, He's trying to, He's working in us, compelling us to understand, to, to actually agree with the Scriptures. But because of the hardness of our hearts, Hebrews 3, right, we can actually resist the Spirit's work in us. We can actually resist the work of illumination. And we can grieve Him as Ephesians chapter 4 says. And that's why we need 
this process of interpretation. So interpretation and illumination are not the same. They are both essential, however, to the study of the Bible. So here's, here's how I put it. I, I got this from, uh, I think Ken Brown put this together, Pastor Ken Brown of Community Bible Church in Trenton. Uh, he puts it this way. When our interpretation is correct, it will perfectly align with God's illumination. So that's your first blank. It will perfectly align with God's illumination. And when we have not perverted, or we could say squelched, God's illumination, it will perfectly align with our, what do you think? Interpretation. So as we interpret the Bible correctly, it aligns perfectly with what the Spirit's doing in us. He's trying to get us to see what the truth of the Scripture is. And when we haven't perverted or rejected the work of the Spirit, then it actually will perfectly align with our interpretation. Alright, does that make sense? Any questions or comments before we move into these first five principles? All right, we'll pick up the next five next week, uh, but for this week we'll we'll um, start with these first five. Second Peter one. Yeah, do you have that open? Oh, okay, I'll, let me just read that because I I know I butchered that when I was trying to quote it. First, Second uh, Peter one. Can you read verses twenty and twenty one? Okay, so again, we, we don't need to take the human author and set him over here. And I, just, I don't want his meaning. I just want God's meaning. Well, if you want God's meaning, then you need the human author's meaning. Because no man ever wrote Scripture without the Spirit moving in him. Okay, that's, that's inspiration. All right, good. Thank you. That was helpful. Uh, number one, the, the correct interpretation is found in the words of the author. The correct interpretation is found in the words of the author. Again, this applies to any kind of literature, but we're applying it to the Scriptures. So whatever meaning, intentions, motives, or feelings an author has, the only access to them, how do we know them? We can't get into the mind of Paul if we don't have his words. And I would suggest to you, we can't get into the mind of God if we don't have his words. Imagine a God, or imagine our God, who created the world and then never spoke. We can't know what God wants for us. We can't know who, what He's like. We can know to an extent, right, just seeing it in creation, but and and certainly law being written in our heart. But we can't know it salvific. We can't know God salvifically. Um, we can't know a person's thoughts with, apart from their words. And so, if we're going to understand what the author means, that's our main task in interpretation. We want to understand what the author means, then we have to have His words. Matthew 5.18 says, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus is saying that every word of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. That there is coming a time when all of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. Now a lot of it already, already has been, but he's saying, Heaven and earth are not going to pass away until it is all fulfilled. And 
And he even said, here's how he put it, not the smallest letter or stroke, or, or as we maybe know it, not a jot or a tittle. Okay, and, and what that's referring to are these small little pieces of letters in the Hebrew language. If you've ever looked at the Hebrew letters, they're typically um, three consonants, no vowels. So, so the Hebrew Bible is actually pretty small in comparison to like a Greek Bible or English Bible. Um, because there's only they only do consonants. If you want to know what the vowels are, you just have to know from the context. And so they're, they're used to that. The the, the Jews would, would be used to that. Um, but what what uh, scholars have done over the years is they've discovered what, or they've uh, determined, I should say, what those vowels are, and they put little vowel points on them. And um, so anyway, Jesus is saying, you can't just take one little letter of the Hebrew and, and distort it a little bit. Be, because if one of them passes away, it actually changes the meaning of those words, right? For example, just think of the word fun, right? Just think of how that is formed in your mind. And then think of the word pun. How much different is it? It's one little jot of a difference. But it changes the meaning, the difference between fun and pun. Or run, right? That Just add another line or bun right and in, in, in these cases only a stroke or a piece of the first letter changes the entire word and the entire meaning and so what Jesus is saying is um, the inspiration of the author of scripture is God's word down to the very last little stroke of a letter when he spoke to the Sadducees um, who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead Jesus Let's turn there because this is this always fascinates me as someone who gets paid to study the Bible, and I'm thankful for that. But but this this really fascinates me how Jesus um, breaks down their argument against uh, the resurrection of the dead. They're saying it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what happens to us in the next life because we're not going to be raised from the dead. Um, and Jesus responds to them. Notice verses 31 and 32. Matthew 22. What did I say? Oh, sorry. Matthew 22. Um, the Sadducees come and try to try to get him in a corner, and they say, you know, if there's a brother and his wife died, or I'm sorry, a brother is married to a wife, and the brother dies, and and then the next brother marries, leverett marriage, you know, and then he dies, and, and all seven brothers. Then who does she marry? You talk about this resurrection thing. Who is she going to be married to in the kingdom? And notice Jesus' response in verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So what is he talking about? Have you not read? Something in the Old Testament. And notice it's in capital letters in your Bible because that's, an allusion or a direct quotation from the Old Testament. And he says, here's what you should have read. Verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, dead but of the living. So here Jesus is proving to the Sadducees that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They are in some way alive right now. And do you know how he does that? From one little word, verse 32. 
I am. It doesn't say when, when God made that promise, I am, those people were all dead. He doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says I am their God. So why would he say that about a dead person? And the point Jesus is making is, see, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. There, there will be a resurrection. He breaks down the rest of their argument in the previous verses by saying there is no marriage in heaven. So don't. That's a dumb question. And dumb questions deserve uh, sarcastic answers. Um, so every word of the author, every word that he uses must be considered according to what he wrote. And so... Uh, this again, this is going to take practice. This is part of the art of interpretation because uh, how do we know? Like we were doing the practice last week, First Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen. How do we know which words are important? Because let's say we were studying uh, Exodus chapter three. That's where this quotation comes from. God is talking to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already dead. How do we know which word in this context is important? Well, a lot of them are important. And we might miss, like the Sadducees did, who actually believed in the Genesis and Exodus account of the Bible, but they didn't believe in the resurrection because they missed that one word. No, nowhere in, in the Pentateuch does God talk about the resurrection. And Jesus said, yes, he did. He said, I am the God. All right, so every word is important, and um, and sometimes finding out which word to, to to think about is 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 going to take practice, but but just recognize that for right now. Number two, what the author meant is the only correct interpretation. What the author meant is the only correct interpretation. This goes along with one of our principles that we've already discussed, which is uh, a text can never mean what it never meant. Right. So there's only one right interpretation. And it's exclusively the interpretation of the author. Now, there are many right applications. Okay, So you could have a number of different guys come in here and preach the same text and understand the meaning and, and explain the meaning properly, but have different application for it. Uh, one text that I think of uh, that's been preached in this church in the last four or five years. Three times. Psalm 42. I've preached it. Jonathan um, Michelek preached it. Mark Novak preached it. And possibly Phil. I don't know if Phil Fitzgerald did or not. But but the reason that we all preached it is we were, most of us were all in the same seminary class. And in our preaching class, that was one of the requirements that we had to do. I, um, so, so we've all done the work on it. And so when I ask these guys to fill in for me, they don't have regular preaching time like I do. So they pulled one of the ones that they had, had studied. And what you're going to find is if you pulled up all three of those sermons from the three different uh, preachers, you might find different application, but you're going to find the same meaning. Right? The meaning is that our hope is in God. It's not, you know... Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? That's Psalm 42. Why so, dis- why so despondent within me? Hope in God, for He will yet save you. He is your help and your 
and your uh, refuge, something like that. So, so, but there's only one right interpretation. So if you ever got in an argument about with somebody about a, a, an interpretation of the scripture, what he means, what an author means, there's three options. Either one of you is right and the other's wrong, the other person's right and you're wrong, or you're both wrong. Because if you disagree on a on an interpretation of a text, there's only one right meaning, and that is what the author intended. So I I would advise you against saying things like this. This is what the text means to me. Have you ever gotten an argument with someone like that where they're like, well, I understand what you're trying to say about that, about the baptism thing. Okay, let's just throw that one out there because we're all on the same page on that one. All right. I know that's what you say, that baptism has to follow conversion. It has to be by immersion. But here's what the text means to me. All right. I think that a person can get baptized by sprinkling. And I put it in air quotes because there's no such thing as the word baptism means immersion. So it doesn't make sense to sprinkle by immersion. It doesn't make sense. So, uh, so... But, but they might say something like that. Well, that's what this means to me. And, and that's really not a good way to talk about the Scripture. It's not really a good way to talk about anybody's writing. This is what it means to me. I could say this is what it, how it applies to me if you have the, the same meaning. But we don't have different meanings. There only can be one meaning. Again, one of us could be right, the other wrong, the other right, we wrong, or we're both wrong. We can't have a disagreement on the meaning that we have to take it from what the author intended. So um, I, I have used examples before, but I'll give you another one. I'm going to run down to the store and get some Cokes. Okay, I don't call pop Cokes, but let's just say I, I did. I was from the South or Atlanta or whatever, wherever they say that, where they call any kind of drink a Coke. And... Then I actually drive down to the store rather than run. I said I'm running to the store to buy some Cokes. And I don't buy Cokes. Instead, I buy Sprite and Orange Pop and Dr. Pepper. And you might say, well, you lied. You said you would run to buy some Cokes. And, and no, I didn't lie. I had an intended meaning, and you need to understand that meaning based on the context in which you live. And the context in which I live, actually. And uh, so that's going to require us to understand idioms. Again, you know, we, we have idioms in our language just as the, the, uh, the Jews and the Greeks did in their language. Um, for example, we have an idiom like, I heard that, which a lot of times we, have, we mean we agree with that. Um, or the slang expression, get out of here. You know, when someone tells us some alarming news, we don't mean, you know, exit the building. We mean that's amazing, right? But we say get out of here. Um, so the, the correct interpretation is based on the context, and it's actually based on what the author meant. And again, we can't understand, back to one, we can't understand what the author meant unless we have his words. Um, uh, so this is going to come up in Scripture. Let me give you an example. In James chapter 1, you have... Uh, the Greek word that is translated as uh, trials, right? 
count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials. That word that's translated trials is actually a Greek word. That's the same word that's used in verse verses 12 and 13. It says that God does not trial anyone. He actually means tempt anyone. Right? Neither is he tempted. And and the point is, is how do we know what James means if he's using the exact same Greek Greek word? Now, our English authors got it right. They actually said, well, there's actually a different idea of the same word. We do the same thing, right? Um, and I've already used examples of that, so I'm not going to beat that dead horse. So we need to understand the author, the author's meaning of those words. And, and to help with that, again, it's helpful to look at dictionaries and lexicons. Number three, understanding is in the mind of the author. Okay, These kind of overlap with each other. But the goal of interpretation is to understand what the author meant. So it's in his mind. And, and so we want to try to understand the statements that he's making, making and why he made them. This is one of the things that helped me the most when I was going through seminary is that one, one professor in particular, Dr. Compton, was always, um, as he would work through the, the, uh, the New Testament epistles, he would take every section and say, okay, why is the author putting this here? And, and as you understand, not just kind of the observation, what we were looking at last week, but why did he put this in this place? Because have you ever come to those passages where he's like, what is that? It seems so out of place. We're working through all this, and then you throw that in there. Uh, one, one that comes to mind is at the end of 1 John, uh, the very end. He's talking through the whole thing about what it looks like to to be a believer, right? You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to obey His commandments. You need to love your brother. Those are the three tests of a true believer. He's working through all this, and he gets to the end, and he says, my brothers, stay away from idolatry. Like, where did that come from, John? You you didn't even talk about idolatry in the entire book. And yet he did. Uh, He talked about it in terms of worldliness, right? Do not love the world, but... Uh, neither the things that are in the world because all that is in the world um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life um, are not of God and so uh, he gets to the end and he says stay away from idolatry and idolatry is basically just fallen values um, uh, worldliness is just fallen values in, in a worldly culture or a godless culture and so Asking that question, we get to that last verse in First John. Why did you put that there? Then it helps us to, to look around at the context, understanding the mind of the author. Um, it's not. Uh, this is one thing that that you might have to give some thought to, but every thought of the author was not inspired. Okay, these authors were all human authors. Who were, who had a sin nature, just like you and me. Okay, so it wasn't that every single thing that they thought was true and right and and sinless. But everything that they put on the page was true and right and sinless. That's what the Holy Spirit signs His name to. Okay, so that's why we don't have to worry about. Okay, we need to go beyond the text so much and and like get into everything that's ever been said by this person. We'll go to all the external sources of what people say that Paul said and all this other stuff. Um, The text actually helps us 
to see what the author meant because, again, we can't know a person's mind without seeing their words, and, and, and so that's uh, how we do it. All right, number four. I need to wrap this up here pretty quickly. Number four, the author intended his readers to understand him in a plain, ordinary, normal way. The author intended his readers to understand him in a plain, ordinary, normal way. Not, uh, not allegorically, but literally. So we believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Now that's a difficult statement because in our culture we use literal in, in, uh, in several different ways. Unfortunately, our culture has actually taken the word literal, and I don't mean it's sinful to do it or that only people who are secular use literal in the wrong way, but they use it in the wrong way. Okay, and, and if you know and love literature, it, it bothers you like it does me. For example, you might hear someone say, after eating a pepper, my mouth is literally on fire. Well, that's not what literally means. Okay? What you mean to say is your mouth is figuratively on fire. But you say literally, and now what happens is more and more people use it in that way that eventually it changes the meaning of the word in our culture, how it's used, right? like the word gay that I've talked about before. Um, based on how people use it, if you just, that's how dictionaries are formed. We don't have one dictionary that stands the test of time. It actually changes every year, doesn't it? It has new lines, new meanings, new words are added to it. Uh, some words actually fall out of use. Um, I was just watching the Michigan game last week, and um, Kirk Herbstreet said at the end of the game, Wilton Spate literally left his heart out on the field. Like, <laughs> really? I mean, this, these, these are the professionals of our culture who are speaking like this, and using literally to mean figuratively. So when I say that we have a literal interpretation, I don't mean figurative. Okay? I, what I mean is plain, ordinary, and normal. Now, when we interpret it literally, the author still may be using figures of speech. Okay? So we're still interpreting literally... But let's say one of the authors said, my mouth is on fire. Okay, We would take him to mean that he's using a figure of speech. He's talking figuratively. But still, in our interpretation of it, we're interpreting him literally. Okay, We're, we're interpreting him not to say, well, his mouth is literally on fire. Um, he's using a different form of speech. And in that way, we're using a plain, normal, ordinary way of understanding. Not allegorical. So do you remember allegory? Allegory is an extended metaphor. It's, you know, one of the best allegories is um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? It's, it's just an extended metaphor about the Christian life, and he, he takes these pictures and makes us see this story about what it's like to become a Christian and then live as a Christian and then fight these battles against Apollyon and, and all these other, um, these great enemies. And, and so... What, what has happened over time is that we have had uh, scholars that have taken the Bible and have try, tried to force, an, or they have used an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, which is different from, the, from a plain, ordinary 
way of understanding it. An allegorical interpretation means I'm going to go to the Old Testament and find out what all those little pieces mean. Okay, so they get into the tabernacle and the temple and they find out what every little nail means or every single thing that's red in the Old Testament. The red heifer, that must have to do with the blood of Jesus. What that would be is allegorical interpretation. Unless the author clearly states or a later author comes back in the New Testament and informs us of what that Old Testament author meant, and we ought not to be going in and trying to find a deeper meaning. Here's the worst way that it's, I think, abused. Israel has become the church. Right? Old Testament Israel was God's people. And so now uh, Israel's kind of done away with, and now we have the church. Now this is God's Israel. And um, there are some... Uh, reasons that we might um, follow that kind of idea, and I don't have time to get into all those. We'll talk about that when we get to our class on dispensationalism. But, but I would suggest to you that we are not Israel. Okay, we have different promises than Israel. Um, uh, we we are not the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel still exists, and God still has a special place for them in the future. And they have just simply been set aside for a time until uh, they repent and come back to him, and then they'll actually be part of the church so that the church will be filled up of, of both Jews and Gentiles. Not that we don't have any people from Israel that are a part of the church now, but I'm saying as a nation, they will come back to God. So, um, so instead of trying to look for a deeper hidden meaning or kind of a double meaning, let's find out what the text says. Let's look at it, observe it, in its context, understand what the author means, and that's it. Okay, then, then we apply it to our lives based on that. We don't have to try to find a deeper one. Kind of like searching every scripture for Jesus. Like, okay, where is this, you know, oh, this relates to his childhood, and this relates... We don't have to do that. If the, if the text says that, then great. That's talking about Jesus. But, but uh, we can get into a lot of danger if we try to find a double meaning more of a meaning than what the author intended, right? If we can't get the meaning from the authors of the Bible, then I would suggest to you that we are no longer studying the Bible, but actually someone's ideas imposed on the Bible. So, um, number five, purpose does not determine the meaning, uh, but it can contribute to the meaning. The purpose of the author does not contribute to the meaning of the author, or, or I'm sorry, does not determine the meaning of the author, but it can contribute to the meaning. So, what you're going to find is when I start on a um, when I start on a, a book, I'll often talk about why this was written. That's the purpose of the book, and I do that because it does contribute to how we understand the whole book. But it's not necessary in the sense that it it guarantees. Um, that we, we know the meaning. For example, let's think about Leviticus 19.19. 19. Why did the law command the Israelites to not breed together two kinds of cattle? Or verse 27, why did the law prohibit men from shaving their beards? And people make all sorts of suggestions about why. Well, the pagans were doing it or health reasons. But what about the food laws? You know, there, there are all sorts of books even written today 
you know, what would Jesus eat? And so that's why we, we need to avoid ham and, and all these other things, because they were not good for our body. And so the best, the healthiest diet is the one that Jesus had. Well, no, that's not the point. And so when we try to get into the, the purpose behind a, a, a text and we make that the primary thing, then we can actually do damage to the text. And, and I would suggest to you that why we can't, why Jews can't breed together two kinds of cattle and why they can't shave their beards and why they have to avoid certain foods um, was not clear. That is, unless you wanted to say a general response because God said so or because God wanted to set them apart from the rest of the culture. But, but besides what God said, we don't have to go any farther beyond that. Why did Paul say that an overseer was to be a husband in 1 Timothy 3? I mean, why not a wife or a single person? And I would suggest to you that, um, that Paul doesn't answer that question. And, and the point is, is that there are some commands that we simply just obey. We don't have to get into a deeper, deeper purpose. So it does not necessarily determine the meaning. However, it does affect our application. And um, I think I'm maybe opening a can of worms here, but I'll try to try to um, do this quickly. Some uh, homosexuals claim that the purpose of Moses in Leviticus 18 is to forbid idolatrous practices. So when it says that homosexuality is prohibited in Luke 18, they say, well, that's just the idolatrous kind of homosexuality. So if you're doing it along with idols, then, yeah, that would be bad. But otherwise, it's okay. You see what they're doing there? They're taking a text. They're taking the. They're they're imposing a purpose on the text, which is not the correct one, but they're imposing a purpose on the text, which is just a clear prohibition against all kinds of homosexuality. They're saying, well, it's just idolatrous kind, and they're actually using that as a proof for why they can can commit the the sin that they enjoy, and so they actually ignore the clear meaning of the passage by imposing a supposed purpose on it. Um, and I could give you another example, but I won't. All right, so for next time, we're going to finish up. I'll, I'll just review those first five principles, and then we'll finish up those last five for next time. All right, I've gone well over time, but I do have time for a brief question or comment. Melissa. Um, I would say that that um, even um, yes, I do believe that a child can uh, understand the scriptures, but I would say that he can understand them because he has the basic laws of human language. He has the basic ability to be able to understand human language as it's presented. So, so here, here's how I would do, here's how I would differentiate them. We can understand the meaning of something. Uh, on our own. So I would say that even a, an unbeliever can come in here and understand how all the sentence structure works and they could actually come up with the same theme that I come up with when I look at it. The difference is they don't understand the significance of it. Right? They understand the meaning, but they don't see it as true. They, you know, let's say that judgment is coming to all mankind. All who oppose Jesus will be destroyed. They could find that in the Scriptures. 
based on a proper interpretation of the scriptures. But they would not understand the significance that is, I need to, I need to change. Right? I need to, so what the Holy Spirit does is, yes, he's, he's definitely involved in the interpretation process, but the, the main process by which he helps us to interpret is, is through illumination. He helps us to see the significance of the scripture that it's true. Um, yes, interpretation is is more just understanding what the author meant. So, like, if I read the Quran, for example, I could understand what the author meant in those in those verses in the whole book. I don't have to have any special insight from God in order to know that. And someone could do the same thing with a new piece of a newspaper or a novel. Um, and I think that that we can do the same thing with the scriptures. But, again, back to the front page, when our interpretation is correct, then it's perfectly in line with what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us, the illumination. So there's a difference between meaning and significance. We can understand meaning. We can't see the significance without the Holy Spirit shining the light on us. That's where the, whole, that's where the child comes in. He can understand it. Yeah. So it's, it's probably, you know, this, this is what theologians like to do. They like to split hairs and build huge doctrines around these. But I think it's an important distinction um, because it actually helps us in the learning process. We don't have to look for something deep or kind of like wait for a sign from God or some kind of voice. We we look at the text. We study it like we would study anything in our literature class. And then, obviously, we're praying along uh, along with that and asking the Holy Spirit to actually enlighten us to the significance of it for our lives. So that we can actually see what that that it is true, and then how we apply it, and that'll be more. Um, so it's not that the Holy Spirit's not involved in it, but I would say that He's more involved in the the application process of how it applies to our lives and how we should use it. All right, so let's talk about that some more next week um, because I know that's not an easy concept to to grasp. Um, so let me pray, and and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, how you use it to instruct us and to help us and to lead us. Lord, we don't want to see it as a just an academic um, uh, book where we just look at it without even considering the Holy Spirit or your work in our in our lives. Um, we, we want to see it as your word, and we want to to be changed by it because it's not enough for us to to simply hear it. Um, but we want to understand it and apply it to our lives, uh, to be like the, the man who built his house on the rock. And so, Lord, help us to learn and to obey. We pray.